Hey, Carl here. You know, there's something new from our friends at Text Control. TX Text Control supports the integration of legally binding electronic document signatures into your ASP.NET Core web applications. Simply use Microsoft Word documents, prepare them using the Text Control online editor, and request signatures from signers. It works just like well-known e-sign services, but runs on-premises in your infrastructure without sending and storing documents somewhere else. To showcase typical workflows and the Text Control electronic signature technology, they published a fully functional demo that can be used to create and request signatures, sign documents, and to validate executed PDF files. See the demo at esign.textcontrol.com. That's E-S-I-G-N Hey, Carl and Richard here. As you may have heard, NDC is back, offering their incredible in-person conferences around the world. And we'd like to tell you about them. NDC Security Oslo has been rescheduled to April 3rd through the 6th. Go to ndc-security.com to register. NDC London has been rescheduled to May 8th through the 12th. Go to ndc-london.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is March 14th through the 17th. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto is happening April 24th through the 28th. Early bird discount for NDC Porto ends February 1st. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Minnesota is happening September 27th through the 30th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Happy New Year. It's a new year. How about that? It's yeah. 2022. How did that happen? I, well, I really don't know because last year kind of sucked. <laughs> it was a hard one. It was a Yeah. The march yeah. of time is inevitable. And, uh, yeah, sometimes the march is harder than others. Anyway, here we are. We're doing the thing, and we'll, uh, we'll keep plowing on. Another year of .NET Rocks. This would be our 20th year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In Come August, August, I guess. We'll have to do something. We'll have to do something. Yeah. 20 years of .NET Rocks. Who knew? 20 years of .NET well, yeah, that's this February is the 20th anniversary. You know, it'd be really great. A book about .NET, that'd be great. That'd be awesome, Richard. How's that yeah. going? Just stab me, please. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know you. I'm can working do it. on it. We'll try. It. We'll get it done this year. A book party and a 20 year anniversary party is yeah, in that'd order. Be, that'd be a pretty good party. I think that I'd would be, be awesome. Do some of that. All right, but anyway, it's time for Better Know a Framework. Roll the crazy music. All right. All right, man, what do you got? Our good friend Mads Christensen yes. has come up with a voice command plugin for Visual Studio. Oh, no. Yeah. So now it responds to my cursing. Yeah. So I had a few reservations, like, number one, does it work with Visual Studio 2022? Right. Yes, it does. Of course. And is it always listening? No. You have to press a magic key sequence. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, In his video, it was Alt-F1, but in my installation, it was Alt-V. I wonder if he's checking to see what keyboard... uh, Yeah combinations are already hooked. yeah if you've got refactor installed or any of those sorts of tools that might mm. uh, take up even more alt keys and you it's got to sort of tune your way around it keyboards are hard with so many different things in there and he says high accuracy but i was not able to open git changes didn't understand that yeah or package manager console it got package and manager but not console so i think i may have to train you know my my computer on the you know the speech recognition stuff. I thought that was an obsolete concept. I thought machine learning had solved all this. No, he says in his video um, that he's using just the standard speech recognition that's built into Windows. So. Oh, okay. As opposed to Lewis. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, he's not using that. Stuff. Just local then, stuff. Then again, do you really want to go into the cloud every time you talk to your computer? Because I talk to my computer. No. <laughs> no. 
I don't have any right. desire to do that. But anyway, I'm, I do plan on doing some training for my voice because I kind of like it. And I recently, um, this is a side thing, but I, I wanted to get some foot pedal action going for uh, editing video. Because right. when I edit video, like it's jumping back and forth between the mouse and the keyboard. It's just kind of a nightmare. So I did a couple of things. I have this transcription pedal that um, right. Kelly, right. I was wife, just thinking the transcriptionists use pedals all the time. Yeah. And it's a HID device, human interface device, right? right? And there's basically USB driver.net things for it. Right. And uh, that was pretty easy to figure out what data it was sending. It's just a and, kind of click, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It's no, there's a middle pedal that you hold down. Right. So there's one signal when you push it down, one signal when it goes up. And then there's two side pedals. So okay. I mapped the middle one to spacebar because I'm using send keys, right? Right, right. I mapped it to spacebar so I could hold it down. It would play, pick it up. It would not play. And then I zoom in and zoom out with the with the other guys. But then I started with some keyboard shortcuts and I, I figured out a, a macro and I used my application to do the macro, not not Premiere, but it works. So anyway, I could hook up this thing to the voice command so I wouldn't have to press Alt-V. I could just push it with my foot and right. say, you know. And, and then talk. And then talk. On the, on the video side, I thought you had a jogging wheel for that, a little external device to do to do jogging back and forth with video. Well, it's you could use the mouse or you could use a jogging wheel, but the thing of it is that you, you're still taking your hands off the keyboard. That's always the thing, isn't it? And it's, you know, it's like, Going back and forth. It this is why stinks. I was rebelling against mice in the 80s. Yeah. Right. It's like, why would I take my hand off the keyboard? Right. So the more stuff I can do with the keyboard, the better. Yeah. Totally anyway, that's what I got. Mads is cool. awesome. Mads is great. It's fun. So who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 1725, the one we did back in February of 2021, almost a year ago now. We were talking to one Jeff Fritz. Maybe you heard of him. And we were talking, you know, he used to own ASP.NET web forms. And I know we're going to do a little web forms conversation today. And we were talking about the different web stacks. And I uh, got this really great comment from Ruslan, who, uh, who said, this episode reminds me so much of Windows Forms. Windforms. Ah, Windforms, yeah. uh, Not long ago, my 11-year-old son was trying to build a tic-tac-toe game for two players in HTML and JavaScript. And he'd been working on it for a few days already. And I'd helped him a few times. But he was about to give up on it. He's going to say, the heck with this? Yeah. Who came up with this diabolical language? Oh, my <laughs> God. This is it's, terrible. I mean, it, and it's not really the language, right? In the end, it's the UX interfaces. It's, like, hard to make something that's yeah. clickable and so forth in in, uh, in a browser. That's just tough. But I yep. showed him WinForms. He'd played a bit with C Sharp and Unity, obviously, making games, and wasn't completely new to it. I explained to him how to bind multiple buttons to the same method so you don't have to have nine methods. And in a few hours, he had the game done and spent the rest of the day playing with the different colors for the buttons, which is what wow. we always did with WinForms, right? It's like, now that I've made it work, let's make it really, really ugly. Uh, how great would our productivity be if we replaced all these Angular apps, or better say, no, make them anymore, and use Blazor? And again... I don't know that Blazor's language is all that powerful, but the UX tools are epic. Well, Blazor is UX. It's not yeah. language. Yeah. You mean the Razor syntax. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so many benefits. One language. No need for REST APIs or the client view model and the regular authentication and one build pipeline. I mean, you can get there with a bunch of that stuff in JavaScript, but I get what you're talking about, Russell. I, I yep. remember Rocky Locke years ago, I think in the early Silverlight days, saying, you know, we've just forgotten how productive WinForms is. Yep. Like how rapidly you were able to build things. It, it's interesting, you know, that the need for uh, multiple cross-platform and multiple sizes, mobile, tablet, uh, PC, and so forth, has created this, uh, this set of obstacles to make it so much harder to build software. Uh, and I still look to power apps, although they've got their own problems, as maybe addressing a bunch of that. So thanks for your comment, Russell. And a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks, because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and use the keyboard. It's yeah, It's the best. Take your hand off the keyboard. That's don't, not the right thing to do. Yeah, you don't, don't need do to do that. 
I'm just yeah. thinking about you, you know, and your drummer skills and having a bunch of foot pedals. Like you get a little unruly down there. You could. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, I have taught each of my feet to operate independently. Yeah. So, so yeah. Possibilities. Two foot pedals. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, you're talking. I got, oh. I got, I got the wheels turning, Mister Franklin, right there. That's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's introduce our guest today. Uh, he is none other than Veli Peklivanov, uh, co-founder and CTO of Resolute Software. Well versed in web development, C Sharp, .NET, JavaScript, and agile project management. Veli has played an active role in the creation of the Telerik ASP.NET AJAX suite. Later on, he takes the position of VP of Engineering at Progress, leading a team of 100 talented software engineers building a cloud platform for developers. He has a lot to share about tackling IT challenges, building engineering teams, and starting a software consultancy company spanning two continents. Welcome, Veli. Thank you for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Did you uh, see us back in the DevReach days in Sofia, Bulgaria? Yeah, um, very much so. Yeah, I was in the audience uh, right when you murdered the names of the Bulgarian winners on stage. Oh, God, that was terrible, <laughs> wasn't it? It was cool. Well, the thing is we're, we're so used to, to seeing that or to hearing that that it doesn't, you know, we don't even pay attention anymore. Right. And uh, it's one of those rare occasions that you pronounce my name correctly. Uh, from the first time, so I very much appreciate that. Well, you know, it wasn't always that way. What he's talking about is at DevReach, which was Tel Telerex Conference in Sofia, Bulgaria, uh, Richard and I announced the winners of the prizes at the end of the conference, and they were all tickets and names and stuff that they put in a in a hat. So we were pulling them out and absolutely murdering these names, as Veli accurately said. Well, it's like the combination of handwriting and and, you know, classic eastern european names with lots of additional consonants and vowels in them so and then well, yeah. is there anything funner than an english speaker trying to tackle those you know some of those names and and forget about reading cyrillic i mean you know yeah. you have to understand that you know r is p and there's a few things that you have to map mentally but but you know it it's the sign of a good mc who can you know take be the brunt of the joke and still laugh at themselves okay. and allow everybody to laugh at them. So that's we're 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 happy we could make you laugh. For <laughs> <laughs> <So> that. <laughs> you definitely did. Yeah, and Eastern European names are notoriously hard to pronounce for uh Western folks. And not to right. mention that you never know which syllable takes the stress. Yes. But it, just getting the sounds right is one thing. The correct emphasis is a whole other. I hope there is a dev reach again. I just got back from Vznitskij. So that's probably that's all right. All right. <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, being in Poland, I remember asking the cab driver, it was with Tim Huckabee, and he asked the cab driver, what's the best beer to get? And the guy said, Zhuzhish. He meant Zhevietz. Zhevietz. <laughs> but he said, Zhuzhish. So that became the joke. Let's go get a Zhuzhish. <laughs> Anyway, we're we're also going to talk about your book, uh, the ASP.NET Web Forms to Modern.NET Migration Guide. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's one that uh, purely came from experience uh, modernizing a few of those legacy.NET applications, uh, and we had some interesting stuff to share. And when you say modernizing, you're really talking about not not one thing to another necessarily, but, you know, all things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So .NET modernization uh, really comprises taking a holistic view of your entire application system along with the database and third-party mm -hmm. integrations, anything going on in there, right? Not just a .NET application, including very often just taking a look at your business processes in general that are being serviced by this application and then try to foresee how they're going to change by modernizing a single piece of the system or the entire system. And this is essentially what we do at Resolute Software. We are a bunch of consultants who can uh, consult you not only on how to properly modernize a legacy piece of software, but also what new experiences we can create for your employers, users, you know, customers and users in general, and then um, try to do that with modern technologies and uh, in the most efficient way possible. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, the thing is not doing a dead drop migration that I don't have to build a new version of this app in the back room somewhere. And then one day everybody has to switch over. But to oh, be yeah. able to have people keep using the software they're used to, but slowly retire those web forms pages. Absolutely. What you are talking about is the long and expensive way, right? And just uh, scrap the old thing and build the new one from scratch. Well, in an ideal world, if we could afford this every single time, we would be very happy as developers, right? Just start with the you know cutting edge technology, scratch that developer itch, that tech techie itch, and then uh, do whatever um, you want to do on a blank sheet of paper. In reality, um, things are rarely uh, that pink, I would say, because you have a lot of existing situation that you have to fit to and adapt, right? And obviously, no sensible business wants to do a whole lot, you know, um, wants to do a bunch of new applications from scratch if they can afford salvaging some of the existing investment, right? Um, and this is mm -hmm. what we try to do intelligently as much as possible, right? And by knowing what good options we have in the future of .NET and Microsoft technologies and JavaScript also, uh, that would come in handy for some of those scenarios we are modernizing. I have customers that do, that want it both ways. They, they want to, some want to, you know, modernize piece at a time and, you know, test and go forward until there's nothing left of the old one. And others want to just start a, a completely new project and just run it at a, you know, in a, on a different, you know, a, a, on a different uh, track, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, when that's done, just make the switch over, you know, there are upsides and downsides to both. I think, you know, the downside is risk when you're, talking about introducing new technology to old technology because you don't really know how the two are going to interact and play well together until you try something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the biggest risk obviously is um, never meeting the time and money budget, right? Or whatever budget you have set because business systems are getting bigger and more complex by the day mm -hmm. and uh, they're, very rarely in our experience, simpler cases that could be modernized just from, from scratch, right? By, by starting fresh. Uh, more often than not, you have to make sure that you re reuse as much as possible and rewrite as little as possible yeah. if you can afford it, right? And how you approach that it very much depends on the specific cases and specific applications, but it turns out that we were able to extract some um, frequent, uh, frequently applicable tips and tricks and experiences that we are ready to share with the audience that we see work better than some other stuff that we have tried in the past, right? Yeah. For example, uh, very often we are talking about some legacy web forms applications that need to be rewritten or modernized, right? Uh, and rewritten is really the bad word here because we're trying to not rewrite them uh, as a whole if we can if we can help it. Yeah. And then um, web forms is a very interesting piece of technology because it's web technology, but doesn't look like any modern web technology. And very rarely does it lend itself to reuse when talking about modernization to, let's say, modern.net. Uh, or some front-end single-page application frameworks like Angular and React. Yeah. And many times customers come to us expecting that just because it says .NET in the name, it should just work, right, in 2021 mm. in the yeah. modern .NET stack. And we try to both teach them and do our own analysis on the subject to find out that uh, we still have to uh, we can still maybe salvage some of the existing piece of functionality and code that has been written, if properly written in the first place, right? Uh, but most often than not, you have to rewrite a considerable chunk and more importantly, re-architect a majority of your system to fit in the new modern web paradigm, right? The, the decoupled yeah. client-server architecture that a classical server page technology like WebForms uh, did not you know, by design promote so much. Yeah, it didn't promote. So what it did promote is people, you know, 
doing code behind buttons and things like that in in your ASP code in your ASPX page. And um, yeah, so I, I guess the question is, where do you look first? Uh, that might be a good place to look first, but it also, you know, the back end would be a place where I would want to look first. I mean, because a back end can be modernized and serve uh, an older front end, and that can be done you know, without disturbing the piece, can it? Yeah, well, we, we hope it can most of the times, right? Uh, the thing comes down to, uh, do I have a properly architected and well-structured entire application written in web forms or uh, Silverlight or whatever the legacy technology is that needs replacement, yeah. right? Because a well-written application is very malleable and it lends itself to being modernized on a chunk by chunk basis, mm. preserving the old as the new evolves, right? Martin Fowler calls this the strangler thick uh, pr um, paradigm or pattern where the new evolves around the old while the two coexist until the new is fully functional and uh, ready to basically replace uh, the old by having it uh, switch, turn off the lights, right? And we try to do that by making sure the backend is, is preserved as much as possible. Uh, if your web forms backend is uh, architected in a way that segregates responsibilities, maybe you have a contract um, project or library entities, services, you know, the typical entire architecture best practices that segregate the different responsibilities and the different parties and promote uh, minimal coupling and maximum reuse, then yes, most of the time you are able to preserve and reuse as much of the legacy .NET code and just migrate them to .NET standard and modern .NET and will work your way up from there. A big piece that we take a look at is the data layer, right? Because data access is generally something that you want to preserve. In any particular application, business or consumer grade, data is your most valuable asset. And it's the one that you want to preserve and create the minimum amount of change possible. Yeah. And you want to minimize breaking changes at all costs, right? And then the question of how do I keep using my data, uh, whether this is uh, a SQL database or a relational database uh, with, uh, with all its uh, schema changes and everything required, or uh, a document or you know, semi-structured data that needs to be accessed both from the old and the new system. And that becomes a big topic of research and, and action items on our side, because uh, there are many different options that you could take, right? Mm -hmm. And we see basically everything um, in, in these web applications. We see data being accessed in a very strict and formal uh, entity framework-based approach uh, with uh, schema classes and, and a properly structured, you know, uh, object model in C-sharp. Uh, but we also see some direct uh, ADO.NET access with uh, SQL statements written in C-sharp scripts, right? Yeah, Veli, I was going to say, in all the projects that you've ever stepped into, have you ever found them that well architected? Like generally a web forms <laughs> app is pretty old. That's why they're calling you. <laughs> yeah, and people were learning them. And it's like, listen, my experience as a consultant, they never call me when it's good news. Yeah. They call me when it's bad news. <laughs> yeah, you're you're spot on there, Richard. Well, uh, to be honest, uh, we have seen some bad examples, but we have also seen some good well architecture applications that obviously make our job uh, you know, infinitely easier uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and the clients automatically more happy, right? Uh, but in the worst case scenario, uh, we could see, you know, SQL statements written in C-sharp or, you know, um, three different SQL flavors uh, coexisting in the same project. And all of these need to be migrated to a new application architecture. And guess what? The client also wants to consolidate databases or sure. to... Well, once you start making changes, you're going to keep making changes, right? Yeah. Like everybody wants to fix everything now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the thing is uh, a modernization project, in essence, is an opportunity for the business to right. really fix its old problems that everybody is now living with, but uh, we know they hurt. 
and um, you know start afresh right they want better data they want uh faster data access they faster want data yeah they want uh snappier user interfaces more engaging users right that's the ui piece i thought of a of a gotcha that would um require more than just a piecemeal update uh, which is you know c sharp 8 introduced async streams right i async enumerable and that is only available in the language and so if the customer says yeah we want this new version to stream the data you know all the way from the database to the ui you know one record at a time using yield return let's say um, that is something that's going to go all the way from the data layer down through the business logic and into the UI and is going to require a significant change that, you know, that poses, um, quite a challenge. And have, have you ever been challenged to the point where you couldn't do a feature, um, piecemeal like that? You had to sort of wait until you got to a certain point to implement it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you always face some challenges that require basically going back to the drawing board and rethinking your entire approach, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes the problem turns out to be much deeper than what the developers or uh, the, the product owner generally anticipated. Yeah. And this is why we like to start with what we call a modernization assessment. Mm -hmm. It's a very time uh, constrained, concise, but intensive um, discovery exercise where we de dive deep into the project, uh, analyze the source code, the overall architecture, talk to system architects, talk to subject matter experts, talk to end users, right? And try to understand their perspective on the system. Mm. We compile everything in a report that combines all the technical findings in written form. Mm -hmm. And then we sit on a table and create a blueprint of a modern architecture of a modern system that we believe is going to solve those challenges yeah and of course when doing that we take all these considerations into account like uh, does the user now want streaming data right that's going to basically create an entire data interchange for that's that's completely different from the legacy or right. do they want um you know real-time data access or server updates mm -hmm. that wasn't possible before right all those requirements are taken into consideration um, and produce um, a system architecture a very high level one but also a choice of technology frameworks libraries and approaches that we believe are viable uh, and can uh, achieve the system objectives um, the end result is generally uh, a recommendation on our side on how this entire modernization uh, could be tackled right, down to the specific choice of technology, libraries, encryption functions, data access methodology, database systems, you know, you name it. Yeah, no, it's the, all those pieces add up. When you, you know, the big thing for me when it comes from web forms is the UX side, like you are replacing the UX. And often with a mature ASP.NET web forms app, you've got a third party control set of things like that seems like a big piece to untangle. Do you sort of outline a UX plan in advance before you really take anything on? Absolutely. So the, the UX overhaul in a typical web forms application is actually much more than just a UX because, uh, as you know, web forms is a server-driven server page paradigm, which means that your user interface is basically server-generated. And now you have this user expectation that your UI should be all snappy, load instantly, you know, change pages in transition without any delay. And that's really the job of modern JavaScript frameworks that work in the browser, right? right. But the new and the old, for them to really, the new to replace the old, you have to have the server changes that support the new, right? And web forms was not a big promoter of an API-based, uh, you know, system design, right? Right. Uh, yes, you did have some callback, you know, structure for doing AJAX requests, XML, and and and, and JavaScript, but you know, we wouldn't say it was, you know, nearly as robust as a typical REST API would be in the modern days, right? So the UI considerations start from the UI, but also transition to the backend, where now you get to talk about how do my you know, web forms called, you know, called behind C-sharp files 
get transformed into a fully blown uh, JSON API that is going to power my modern JavaScript-based application for these snappy interfaces, right? Only when you figure that out, then you go into discovering what your UI requirements are and picking components based on their capabilities, critical feature requirements, and then the interaction between the client and the server that you need to create. It seems like a Blazor server would be the obvious choice for for web forms to modernize and because you know you have sort of that magic signal r stuff going on yeah do you find that companies are hip to using blazor server do they not like the idea would they rather move to you know pure client technologies like even WebAssembly? yeah well blazor in general is a very hypey topic for the entire community including for our team like we are mm-hmm. uh, have done a couple of Blazor projects and now are in the middle of a major Blazor-based project for a big uh, client, uh, multi-year project also, where we get more and more confident with Blazor every day, right? Seeing its capabilities, seeing what uh, it can do. Mm -hmm. In relation to server-side Blazor, our particular cases uh, were all client-side Blazor because they had to work as, uh, you know, separate uh, client-side applications and had some API to access, uh, but uh, but we can see the merit of uh, server-side Blazor for some specific scenarios, uh, provided that uh, network bandwidth is not an issue for right. you, right? Sure. Maybe for some intranet a- applications that are running very close to the server, right? Where maybe the end-user browser and the server is uh, in the same network or same infrastructure. So wait, are you saying that they're concerned about network bandwidth at the client? Because server-side Blazor uses network traffic. It's the client side that's heavy. Actually, the client side is very light. Compared to a modern web page. And the bandwidth is light too, compared to a WebAssembly. Interesting. Yeah, well, so this server-side Blazor is the one that sends all browser events to the server to be executed Right there, right? So essentially what you do is you observe every single interaction of your user in the browser and you send that to the server where the server generates the response for that, right? That's true. So you you bandwidth maybe latency. Yeah, latency sensitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, latency is the the culprit here because you want to preserve the snappiness of a modern web-based application and you are concerned that the response could come back as quickly as possible, just like having been executed on the JavaScript side, right? Sure. And now, Valley, I got to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. You know, time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customers peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage-based plans start from as little as $4 per month with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey, man. And we're talking to Veli from formerly of Telerik, now of Resolute Software, uh, about this whole process of doing ASP.NET Web Forms migration. And the other thing that I find in web, old Web Forms apps, especially, is like SQL statements right in the right in the page. You know, they're just calling to the database straight up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah. which is, I mean, that's just not a practice anymore. Like we, we kind of need a layer there. Like that to me seems like a huge piece of rearchitecting. No, talk to me about it. They were not a practice even in the web forms days, all right? So we've had enough written about, you know, multi-tier and tier architectures and how segregating your tiers is a good thing and how you need to, you know, keep your layers separate and then promote clear interfaces between the layers. 
And yet we still see basically SQL statements written in C-sharp code behind files for uh, WebForms ASPX pages, right? Yeah. The, the complete anti-pattern of, of an entire architecture. Mm -hmm. And in this extreme tough case, you, you know, supposedly can reuse as, you know, some code, some of the existing uh, assets that are created by your developers, but you're pretty much up for a almost complete rewrite of your system to anything new, .NET or anything beyond, right? Yeah. Because uh, you uh, have to uh, migrate a lot of code. You have to create a proper, you know, layered architecture. You have to promote your server capabilities through a REST API. And it all becomes, you know, a big mess if you want to uh, have this coexist with the old. Actually, the topic of coexistence of the old and the new system is very popular in this type of problems and one that we see every day because obviously we want the old to continue working and actively maintained as we develop the new, right? So a natural question becomes, how do you start replacing or what are the granular pieces of the old legacy system that you would replace first and how you would go about this type of coexistence between the old and the new, right? Yeah. Most of the times when talking about .NET applications, we coexist a .NET framework application with its own separate runtime with a modern .NET 5 or .NET Core application with a separate runtime. Right. Those two runtimes need to share user sessions, authorization, authentication, and navigation components so that you can create a seamless you know, idea that your UI changes from the old to the new without the user you know, being disrupted. Um, a lot of UI and data challenges in this picture that we solve daily, basically. Well, yeah, and and I get to a point where I'm starting to think: Would I have to make modifications to my old ASP.NET Web Forms app to maintain compatibility with this .NET five or six app that I'm that it's emerging? Especially we get to sort of authentication things and so forth, where like, hey, you implemented an ASP.NET two membership. Oh boy, <laughs> you're a long way away from modern authentication. Absolutely. And uh, the membership situation is quite interesting, actually, because we've had a real case where uh, a legacy.NET application with the user membership had to be exposed to a modern.NET application where, you know, the, right. the user authentication authorization mechanism is different. So we had to, uh, you know, work around some interesting limitations to make sure that, for example, the session cookie is available to the new .NET application. And then because the new application didn't know what to do with uh, a classical web form session cookie, we had to create a bunch of endpoints on the web form side that would identify those uh, session cookies and would identify the user as a result. And then the, the new application would work with this user just like right. an identity service. Mm. And, right? and you know this is code you're writing that's temporary. That's just the bridge until you get everything moved across even though it might be a couple of years to do so. Yeah, absolutely. It's temporary, but, you know, given the lifespan of a typical .NET application in Especially the modern internally. business. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years, so 20 we years. see, yep. absolutely. And we see 15, 20 year old .NET applications sure. just now, you know, starting to be modernized. So you don't really know for how long the two systems would need to coexist. It, it's not really a short-term thing. It could be years before the, the new one evolves to the point where the, the old could shut down. So, you know, most temporary things actually become quite, uh, you know... Pretty permanent. Permanent over time, correct. <laughs> I would write into the code somewhere a comment that said, if you're ready to delete this, you should throw a party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a funny story about this back in my Teleric days where I had fixed a broken feature in the Teleric grid component so many times that I had left a bunch of comments in the source code forbidding anyone on the team to ever touch this feature again <laughs> because I had, I had just stabilized it to the point that I knew nobody would do any better. <laughs> yeah, this uh, is as good as this is going to get. Don't touch it. Yeah, or a pox yes. <laughs> will be placed on you and your head yes. and your family and your family's family.
Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. And you and you still happen to touch it and you fail, just increment that counter over here. Right? Yes. It reminds <laughs> number of deaths. It reminds me of uh in the olden days when authors didn't you know wanted to prevent people stealing their books, they would write uh in the foreword like a, a a bad luck thing will happen to you will befall you it was like a curse you know right <laughs> if you steal this book a curse will be placed on your family <laughs> yeah that's it i i remember writing that stuff for caching code back when we hand wrote a lot of caching code before the libraries were any good yeah and it's just not obvious code and so it always had a big comment block at the top of it, it was like if this seems wrong to you don't touch it. <laughs> Ask someone. Yeah. Yep. And we still see such types of comments in the code basically every day. You know, all kinds well, of I got to bet when you're poking through other people's code, every so often you're going to reach one of those comment, here there be dragons comments <laughs> inside that gap. It's like, okay, why were they afraid of this? Mm. Hey, we haven't really talked about testing a whole bunch. And as I recall, Web Forms was remarkably resistant to testing. Like it was hard to build a test harness around a Web Forms app. Yes, very much so. And uh, now that we're talking about modernizing an entire system, basically migrating to something different, testing becomes front and center to what you should do early on to make sure that you minimize breaking changes and regressions, right? Right. Uh, and the testing piece is also something that our team knows how to start and do very well because uh, we see the value of a well-written test set that could basically save your butt in tough situations where you think everything is right, but it's not really, uh, especially given aggressive timeframes that everybody has and everybody wants to get into production as quickly as possible. Right. Uh, just compiling your application and seeing that it works or the typical works on my machine statement is nowhere near enough to make sure you are doing a quality work oh, in your migration. Especially a web forms app. But I would think if you've got a mature web forms app, you should be able to do some decent Selenium style walkthroughs of that app to exercise it and know that those are going to be pretty sustainable tests because there isn't a lot of change happening in the main app. I imagine snapshot testing in general is a good Our idea. Our snapshot too, right? All these sort of kinds of tests that for a stable app so that if you're doing you end up making backend changes or tweaks to try and make the modern app behave you'll you'll see that you've broken the old app definitely so and i like that you mentioned selenium because we do a lot of selenium for what we call the critical path testing mm. where we make sure that all the critical user paths are covered by ui tests written in selenium uh, but not only that, we do a lot of unit testing with n unit and x unit. Obviously, you have to do that if you are migrating um, your web forms, uh, server side projects like services, interfaces, contracts, models to .NET standard, right? Yeah. You have to make sure your domain model is well tested and has a good test coverage if you are attempting to rewrite that. You have to make you sure you have rewrite. a domain model. That's probably <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the that's the step uh, that's step zero, I guess, yeah. right? And and if you don't, well good luck because now your project uh, just became twice as expensive, right? Exactly. Send those customers to me. No, I'm kidding. This is always the battle then is as you start to introduce all of the ideas that are be necessary to modernize this app, you you're gonna scare folks away from doing it. Sure. I mean, what's the prompt? What gets these folks to actually even consider migrating this app? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of different things, actually. We see different migration uh, problems or different problems that lead to migration for the business. Some of it is just uh, technology lifecycle, right? We see a lot of Silverlight applications still right. being migrated, right? Even though we know Silverlight is technically dead today, uh, we still have new Silverlight migration projects starting in yeah. our team because people realize that they can no longer no longer keep the lights on yeah, for yeah. edge incompatibility mode with ActiveX components and Silverlight running on it. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, you are you are really threading the needle now to have Silverlight run on a browser anymore. Like absolutely, it's hard. And there are still teams that try to do that as much as possible, but it's a uh, you know um, it's something that you know the end is near and it's coming yeah. one way yeah. or another. So. The sooner you get off that trend, the better. We had a customer that had a web forms application 
that just had so much cruft built up around it uh, and just kept crashing and crashing. And it was so big and unruly, they couldn't figure out why it was crashing and all that. And um, the the reason was it, it's not going to make it to the end of the year. Mm. Like it's mm-hmm. it's costing us money when it goes down. Right. Yeah. We recently assessed a major silver white based system. Think about about million lines of code, silver white and and web wow. forms combined with classic uh, double CF services. Mm-hmm. And now the entire application needs to be modernized because you know there's really no coming back from silver white's death. So it's a major overhaul project by now because to silver white alone is something that you have to get rid of. But this also gives the chance to basically rethink your way around platforms in general mm. and WCF services in particular, sure. because nobody uses that anymore. And the amount of developers that are comfortable maintaining such a system are uh, diminishing, right? Yeah, I think that would also be one of the prompts is that you, know, you, you get responsible in the point of view of we're running out of people who are willing to build that app. And especially the one you described is terrifying. That's three different generations of code in that mm. app. Web Forms, WCF, Silverlight. Yes. Like I, there's almost nobody that has all that in their heads anymore. Yes, and it's all definitely uh, it's it's all catching the last train, I would say, with with the Silverlight, you know, mm. uh, end of end of life. Well, we did um, we, a month ago. We did a show with Giovanni talking about Open Silver, which is the WASM implementation of Silverlight, which mm-hmm. is cool. Yeah. Uh, but that's not re-engineering. That's finding a way to get rid of the plugin, and it's got its own consequences as well. Uh, reti- WCF isn't being migrated to .NET six, or di- it wasn't direct migrated to .NET five. It's not going to go to .NET six. Like you can't modernize with WCF overhead. Yes, and you don't have good, high quality client components for WCF anymore. Right. We funny thing is we tried it with Blazor because it's so hype, it's so popular. We said, okay, Blazor should work with WCF because it's a modern technology mm-hmm. and it needs to work with whatever server side Microsoft can throw at it. Well, we couldn't make it, right? Uh, it's not something that works out of the box and you know, fitting that or you know, shimming that would take a lot of time and effort. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we took a completely different approach and we ended up suggesting a rewrite of the WCF um, API layer only through JSON and REST APIs. So basically we're talking about a shim or an adapter that would translate JSON calls to WCF services on the server wow. side. When nice. what you end up what you end up doing is you preserve your entire WCF backend, but you expose it through JSON for whatever modern JavaScript framework needs to work with it. Nice. So it was a major win on our side because we basically said, "Hey guys, we're gonna we're gonna keep your entire backend. Mm. You know, if 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 this doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things and overall tight timeframes that you have, I don't know what does because now we're talking about really a UI overhaul and not an entire system overhaul. Mm, right. And then they could go back and attack the the WCF thing, and now you have this JSON interface. So as you retire the WCF dependencies you could rewrite the data access layer to take WCF out of the loop. Just cut yes. back some of that overhead. Yes, you can chunk it. You can do it in different times. Yeah. Now your urgent task of removing Silverlight is slightly easier because you don't have to rewrite the complete system. Right, right. Now, I, I appreciate that because normally when I'm thinking about these parallel execution paths, it's only at the data level they're really sharing. The idea that you'd be able to share a little more in the mid-tier by creating that abstraction is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe so, because at the end of the day, it's uh, solving the most burning problems first, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. this system would benefit from a complete rewrite and also would open the doors for many modern developers to come join and contribute, right? Because I don't believe that any modern .NET developer wants to keep writing WCF services in 2021 or 22 now, right? But uh, the biggest problem in our case was Silverlight because this client is literally catching the last train before their Silverlight application stops working. Uh, so now we have found a way to quickly get through that without touching the entire system and then save some time in the process. Yeah, very challenging uh, set of problems. Do the diversity of devices come into play? Like folks, we really need this app on a phone now. Yeah, excellent, excellent question. 
Um, the versity of devices, screen sizes, and form factors, and also mouse and touch combined, right. play a huge role in the modern web applications that, that businesses demand nowadays. And it all comes down to, to me, uh, we, we did a brief analysis on the subject uh, at Resolute, and it turns out that every modern user, whether, whether they're using a business application or a consumer application, is now spoiled by what we call those consumer-grade applications. Yeah, sure. Applications like... The iPhone ruined everything. <laughs> it's yes. all the iPhone's fault. <laughs> yes, they all expect it to be snappy, uh, to load instantaneously, to work offline, uh, to keep working when you uh, go in and out of network connectivity, right? Huge challenges for a data-driven web application, if you think about it. And now those requirements become uh, table stakes for modern .NET projects. Um, you have applications. We are building applications that must run from as small of a device as an iPhone 6, which has a six-inch display, a tiny, uh, 320 pixels wide in virtual pixel uh, width, to up to um, multi-monitor 4K display setups for uh, the um, desktop users that need full, full productivity. So fitting this into the same piece of user interface application or project is an enormous challenge, right? Um, mm -hmm. I liked your comment in the beginning about how productive WinForms was yeah. because you threw a bunch of controls, you wired the events, you wrote some, you know, server some some code behind code, and boom, your application is ready to go. Uh, nothing like that anymore in the modern web application development, where the moment you have a button, now you have to think about how does how does that button look on an iPhone, mm. and then yep. how does it look on my 4K Retina display mm -hmm. or 5K, and then what if I connect an external monitor? How is going to look uh, there? So. A single button becomes three or four different buttons that you need to optimize. Multiply this by the complexity of your overall user interface, and you get yourself a much bigger UI project that anyone anticipates in the beginning. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's way more complicated than you think. And, and is that always the way? You've been using this app for a long time. Uh, you forget about the sophistication that's actually in that app, a lot of that mature logic that's buried in it. So it looks trivial. Let's just redo it on, uh, on a new stack that is cross-platform. And it, it, every time I've seen that that separate execution where they go off and build it separately, as soon as it arrives, it's not even close to what's actually needed. Like it, mm. they, they miss so many things that were learned over the years of building that old app. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and this is also something that we have discovered through experience and something that we anticipate and prepare for. And by the way, our user interface design team uh, does a great job of anticipating those problems and solving them on, on paper, on virtual paper or in the design prototypes. Actually, design work is something that we recommend for any major modernization project that touches the UI, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes some projects don't touch the UI. You know, they, they want to do some data work, some integrations, some cloud migration, if you want. Right. Uh, but anytime you're touching the UI, you're not just rewriting it. You always want it to look and behave better. Not to mention that uh, with a legacy application like WinForm, uh, WebForms, excuse me, uh, which is server-driven, you by design do not get the snappiness and the responsiveness that you need in a modern application. Right. So the moment that you want to fit this in your new system requirements, it le it's a complete redesign and re-architecture of your UI layer. Having experienced user interface designers in your team is a very major asset for your project success because they now see, they do the same type of assessment on the UX and UI side of things alone, and then they map the legacy functionality to the new modern system requirements, and then they create user interfaces that can work on many devices and many form factors. Now it's a little more clear for your stakeholders what the end result is and infinitely clearer for your development team what they need to be, uh, to, to create. I think you're also educating them on how complicated this actually is. Like you can't just put web forms on a phone. You're not going to be happy with the result. You have to rethink the interfaces. What's your feeling about gRPC? It's awesome. 
So we are using gRPC with Blazor for a major project uh, nowadays. And we see a lot of good stuff, good performance. Being able to share models between the client and server is awesome. The data interchange is very concise and compact uh, because of the binary format. Uh, it's a keeper. Yeah. Uh, and we use, in the same project, we also use SignalR because of a different set of requirements. And we see that both of them can coexist. Sure. Given the choice, you would be very hard pressed to you to not use gRPC uh, nowadays, given that uh, we see a lot of investment in this technology and it's a major mm -hmm. player now in the .NET ecosystem. It's ultimately just as efficient as it gets too. I mean, they the, the gRPC team comes down to bits when they're talking about what they can shave off and you know, it's it's really, really uh, well well uh, formulated. The data, you know, the protobuf protocol is really good. Yes, it's about as good as it gets. Definitely. So the protocol is well defined. The data interchange is clear and concise. Mm. Performance is su supreme. Works on small devices as well. Yeah, we tested it on iPhones, Android devices. Works awesome. And even though these real-time communication technologies are generally considered for you know real-time data interchange needs, we have come to the point where we're seriously considering gRPC as a replacement of a traditional API yep. because of no. its performance and because for those scenarios where you end up creating a bit of chattiness between the client and the server, you cannot get away with just getting a bunch of data from the server at once when your application bootstraps and then reduce your application date bandwidth after that. But you need um, to constantly interact between your client and the server. For those situations, we see a real-time framework like gRPC to be a very suitable replacement to a traditional API. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how they've gone back to that real tight binary encoding, but done it in a way that it's still transportable across multiple platforms. Because yep. we went away from all that back then into the XML hell for compatibility's sake. And it turned out to be not that compatible and big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in reality, it took the web development community a decade to realize that HTML is basically a text protocol. Right. Right. And it cannot be much more efficient than text encoding is, right? right? Yeah. Uh, and yes, WebSockets did start to solve this problem quite a bit uh, with SignalR and everything. But now with gRPC and uh, MessagePack and Protobufs, we see a real comeback to the basics of client-server data interchange and to the idea that whenever you're exchanging data, it should be efficient and not just work. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, Veli, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? A lot of exciting stuff. So .NET 6 is now at the door. Uh, we have some exciting stuff there to explore. We have major Blazor projects coming up for us. And obviously, we continue to do anything .NET and anything JavaScript mm -hmm. in our team. Mm -hmm. um, and we continue to discover new patterns and practices that we strongly recommend, right? We discover repeatable solutions to problems that we face uh, every day uh, through different uh, applications, different business domains even. But uh, we see some good approaches uh, being applied uh, and solving the problems efficiently. So we continue to invest in that, uh, create our expertise or improve and, and, and amass our expertise at Resolute. And hopefully we can uh, be of much better, much more service to our clients uh, in their modernization efforts. All right. Well, uh, Veli, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And one more shout out for your book, Resolute's Migration Guide, ASP.NET Web Forms to Modern.NET. Check it out. Get it today wherever books are sold. Thanks, Veli. Thank you for having me, Carl and Richard. It was a pleasure for me. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, 
and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.